We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed hello sunshine i'm alexi lawless and welcome to the state of the union podcast where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red white and blue colored glasses this week we'll be talking uh u.s olympic team biggie inner miami come to bowl Manchester Derby, Derby, whatever you want to call it, DK, Barcelona, Bayern, Mormons, development, salary caps, VAR, and so much more. But first, joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday, March 8th in the year 2021? I am doing well and pleasantly surprised because I assumed it would be a chore for you to discuss the notorious B.I.G., but based on a text message you sent out last week, it sounds like you not only watched the Netflix documentary, but you're eager to talk about it. I am. It's a highly anticipated documentary that is out. Uh, we, we had teased it last week, and I will remind everybody. That uh, as you know, I, I think not necessarily experts, but certainly well versed in the in the world of docu- uh, documentaries. I think you would agree with me, Mossy, that the mark of a good documentary is the ability to bring you in and entertain you um, and provoke you, even though you might not have any interest uh, and or association or connection with the actual subject, which is the case pretty much when it comes to the biggie. Uh, what's what was his real name? I forgot his real name. Christopher Wallace. Uh, yes, Christopher Wa- Wallace. Uh, Biggie Biggie Smalls. Uh, documentary, right? Correct. Yes, I did watch this. So uh, we should probably get right into it, right? Because we 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 have some special guests that you also teased, right? Uh, yes. Uh, both our producers Jeff Hernandez and Luis Aguilar claim to be massive hip hop fans. They have their ear to the streets. And so they wanted to chime in on this conversation so we can bring them both in right now if they're ready. All right, gentlemen, uh, my first question is, is to you, how, I mean, how deep? I mean, if I was a Biggie fan, I would probably have some sort of question that is able to tell us how uh, real you are when it comes to Biggie. Like, is this just kind of something that you fell into or do you go deep? Can you give me deep, deep cuts and all that kind of stuff? I'll start with you, Luis. Um, I'm more of a general, like overall fan of like hip hop and Biggie. So I'm not like into the deep cuts or anything, but it did like, I did like the doc. I thought it was all right, but I could see like, if you had known a lot about Biggie, it might've not been entertaining. And even if you did know a lot about Biggie, I don't know. I don't know what you get out of it, I guess. So what do you give it out of 10? Maybe like a seven. Yeah. Yeah. Right. What about there. you, Jeff? 
Uh, I'm, uh, I think Ready to Die is probably one of my all-time favorite albums. So I was, I came in also being a, a big fan of Biggie and knowing most of the things uh, in the documentary, there were some couple details that I did enjoy that I didn't know, such as like the, the jazz player that, that he would practice with and how he, he came up with his rhythms and his rhymes through, through old school jazz, you know, drumming, um, his trips to Jamaica. So there was a couple of nuances there that that i liked but then most of it i feel like i knew already but you you just mentioned uh the seminal album for you but there is only one real album i mean really when you look at it right that's what i that's what i found out in the documentary it's not like he was prolific and had this huge discography out there right so it just i mean it was a brief shining moment albeit one that a lot of people look to as all-time great like i said something phenomenal right yeah it was one of the all-time great albums i think in hip-hop history for sure and he had a second album. Mossy, what about you? Yeah, he released two albums. There was one, Life After Death, that came out uh, like days after he 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 died. Um, just to give a little larger context here, one of my favorite historical figures is John F. Kennedy. And there there's this sense uh, in recent years that people have become assassinationed out. There's a whole cottage industry devoted to the assassination, conspiracy theories. And so now you're seeing a lot more documentaries and books written about John F. Kennedy that focused on his life and what he actually achieved. And this documentary was done in that same vein. There have been numerous books and documentaries and podcasts done on his rivalry with Tupac Shakur and their respective deaths. And so this documentary was done by Biggie's family and they made a point of saying, we're not gonna focus on his death, we're gonna focus on his life. But the issue is for somebody like you, Alexi, you didn't get the full picture because that was obviously a very important part of his legacy that they kind of yada yada. And so it was interesting, as Jeff mentioned, to learn about his upbringing and, and yeah, the, the jazz background, the trips to Jamaica and all the rest. But then you get to the end and, and they just sort of skip through all the major events in the last year or so of his life. Thank you. Thank you, David Mossy. That, this, is, this is why I love you, my friend. You hit, it, you hit the nail on the head, okay? And and I've actually seen other documentaries that that document uh, you know the feud and the uh, the investigation and all that kind of stuff. But you can't have a biggie documentary that I mean it, it's not it's like it's not even there. That's it's it's it is a huge part of the story. It's the reason why I know about him. I guarantee you. Okay, if he hadn't been assassinated, all right, uh, then I I I wouldn't have probably known about him. Okay, so it's a huge huge part of the story that's left out. Now. Um, to, to your point, Jeff, uh, some of the musical uh, part of it really was interesting to me in terms of how he went about, you know, his his rhythmic type of approach to rapping and the syncopation, all that all that kind of stuff, especially with regards to the the, the jazz beats and all that kind of stuff. That to me, uh, that to me was interesting, but I, I was left with this this feeling: uh, was was he a good guy? I mean, I, I felt for his mother because I feel like she was constantly sticking up and protecting someone that when, when it really came down to it, while I'm sure he loved her, I, I don't know, I, I, he's, he was certainly not an angel. That, that, look, there's plenty of people in music that aren't angels. I, I, I get that, but they tried to make me care about this person and I felt that I was being forced to care about somebody that I'm not sure was deserving of my of my care, other than the the great musician that he was. So, and I don't know. I mean, I I, I so I, I do give it a seven. 
uh, it's missing a lot of uh, a lot of that stuff. And you know, I I wanted to care about him more. And you know, he seemed to be doing everything behind his mom's back. And his mom, even to this day, will sit there uh, and defend the things uh, things that he uh, that he did. So I don't know. Now, I, I do I have know. a bone is, is he a good guy? Uh, from a hip-hop perspective. Uh, they did paint this picture as if all the good music in the early 90s was coming from the West Coast uh, until uh, Ready to Die was released. There are two other seminal East Coast albums that came out um, within a, a year or so before Ready to Die. One was uh, Wu-Tang's debut, 36 Chambers, and the other is Nas's debut, Illmatic, which is for my money the greatest album in hip-hop history. It is a superior album to Ready to Die. Uh, now, I'm a little biased. Nas is my favorite MC of all time. But nevertheless, that, they, they could have gotten to mention that there was there was a general East Coast renaissance taking place. It wasn't just Biggie. Now, granted, Ready to Die was the, the bigger commercial success than either 36 Chambers or Illmatic, but those were very See, important. this albums. is the problem. This is the problem, Mossy. You're bringing East Coast, West Coast into it as opposed to just being kumbaya and it's all about everything and everybody's together. And this is, you know, I can't East even Coast had all the lyricists and West Coast, it was a lot of bow, wow, wow, yippee, yo, yippee, but catchy tunes so people fell for that nonsense, but take moments. All right. So I think in general, the State of the Union gives it a thumbs up in that there is something of interest. Uh, I, I would be on the lower part. I think uh, you guys would be on a little higher part, but it's it's also something that's certainly in your in your wheelhouse. I did, you know, I did enjoy it. And like I said, I learned uh, I learned some different things, but it, it was glaringly missing the, you know, a huge part of that story. And a really, by the way, interesting part of the story uh, that still hasn't been solved as far as I'm concerned, right? So we're still, I mean, it's, uh, you, you started out talking about, you know, conspiracies and assassinations and all that kind of stuff. Well, you know, here's one that still hasn't been solved to this day. So I don't know. What else? Uh, uh, guys, thank you very much for uh, for chiming in here, okay, uh, about this stuff um, to Jeff and uh, Luis there. All right, Mossy, what else did you watch? Well, uh, one uh one crime that I think has been solved is these bombings in Salt Lake City in the mid '80s. Uh, you mentioned Mormons. Oh my! You, you're on, you're on, you're on my wavelength, well. my friend. Uh, uh, Mark Hoffman uh, up to no good in the '80s in Salt Lake City. Uh, so I'll, I'll let you take it away. Hey, listen, uh, Biggie might not have been a good guy, okay? But this guy in Salt Lake <laughs> in the '80s, this guy was a bad guy. All right. And for those that don't know what we're talking about here, is a brand new documentary that uh, that dropped on Netflix over the last week called "Murder Among the Mormons." Okay, and you know, last week I was telling you about the um, the forgery documentary that I was watching in Art World. Well, this is also about um, forgery and forgery of historical documents, and in this case, uh, pertaining to um, you know the Mormon uh, community over there. And it is just a nutty. I mean, I didn't hear about this, and and I was growing up at that time, but this wasn't on the news, so this was all kind of news to me. But it is a nutty story. I recommend it highly. I think it's three episodes. And uh, as you mentioned, Mossy, happening out there in Salt Lake in the Mormon community, and this uh, this guy who uh, was, if you just if you just look at it from a, a forgery perspective, one of the greats in terms of what he did. And not, not only did he forge documents, religious documents, but forged uh, you know, different writers and different poets and stuff like that. So who knows how much of it is out there, but ultimately it got away from him so much so that he ended up 
<laughs> killing some people. And I'm not giving away anything, but you should check it out because it is a nutty, nutty story. So you did watch that, Mossy. And we weren't together. We didn't talk about this. So it's interesting that we both gravitated to uh, it. Correct. Yeah, I watched it. I was uh, fascinated by it. Uh, one more shout out I want to give is, and Keith Cossigan turned me on to this, is uh, have you watched any of the Stanley Tucci Searching for Italy show on CNN? I haven't. That's on CNN, yes. I think, uh, uh, right? It's a, a weekly, uh, you know, he, he you know goes to different places and searching for Italy and, or in, in Italy. And, Anthony you know, Bourdain type too. thing, travel show, yeah. focus on food, uh, different region of Italy in each episode. And yeah, last night, the uh, Milan episode aired, the Lombardy region, uh, and it was great. And, and all the previous episodes have been great, too. He did one in the Lazio region, Rome, and then the Tuscany region, obviously heavy emphasis on Florence, uh, uh, Naples, Campania region. And so uh, they've all been great. I love it. I love it so much. So I highly recommend the show. You know that the taste buds are simply influenced by where that you are, That is one of right? your great okay. hot takes, that food in Italy is overrated. No, no f food is relative to where you are eating it, and it can be something and become something that it isn't simply by the fact uh, that you are eating it in an incredible environment or one that you perceive to be uh, to be better than other environments. That's, I mean, I, okay, I digress. We've, we've been through that. Uh, the last one that I will leave you with, uh, Mossy, uh, did you ever watch the original Coming to America? Uh, yes, of course. All right, well, so the next one, the sequel, as everyone is wont to do nowadays, 30 years on, uh, Coming to, the number two America, uh, is out, uh, still starring um, uh, Eddie Murphy, the great Eddie, Mur Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall, and they bring back everybody and anybody that was in the original. So for someone like me who saw it, the original, and it's just a, a classic and wonderful comedy, uh, to see all these characters back again was, <laughs> was really funny. And I think they did a good job. Uh, I think they did a good job. It wasn't, it wasn't anything that it, that it should or shouldn't be. Um, and it, it was funny, uh, probably not as funny as the original, but, but still, I think, uh, I think they did a really good job and it was, it was fun to see. There was a you know, there was just a, an entertainment aspect of it that sometimes is is missing. It wasn't preachy. It wasn't. Uh, it didn't. It didn't go into a completely different direction. Um, and there were some really really good performances. And they added uh, actors that hadn't been in the original that made it uh, that much better. So I do recommend that. Anything else, Mossy? No. You know, there are people who think this podcast needs to get shorter in length. We're off to a bad start on that front. This was quite the beefy <laughs> opening segment. Yeah. Whatever. You know, it's 2021. We can do whatever we want. There is no time. There's no time, Mossy. All right, we're going to... All right, let's, let, let's light this candle, yep. shall we? All right, uh, we're going to jump right into uh, the, the international game and the situation that is going on right now when it comes to the international game. As we know, all over the world, just in terms of the domestic game, it's been a struggle over the last year to get games in all the different uh, realities on the ground for all the different countries and cultures out there and everybody trying to figure out how to happen. Some have done better than others. And then just in normal times, we know that people complain all the time about the amount of games and the wear and tear on players. Well, uh, that continues on, <clears throat> excuse me, that continues on. And the international aspect, especially when it comes to qualifying, we got uh, Olympics that, we were, that, uh, that we'll talk about uh, for a little bit and uh, World Cup qualifying coming up. Come to find out that uh, Comnable, the confederation down there uh, in, uh, in South America, has 
postponed um, and moved their qualifying process that was set to begin uh, here in the next couple of weeks, right? Um, and well, it's already they begun. Moved we're, it we're, on we're down. Four rounds in, kicked... it's already begun. We're off and running on. Well, but but their but their qualification games were set to, to set to happen. That they've Correct. moved. Yes. So they've kicked that can down the road. Now that's that's not unprecedented because in 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 reality, what they've done is they've moved it to dates later on in the year. Um, and uh, what we're going to see here possibly is they're actually going to do what Concacaf is doing, and probably you're going to look at these blackout weeks, if you will, that actually have three games as opposed to the normal two. And that's just going to kind of be what's uh, what's going on. Have I framed that correctly, Mossy? I want to make sure that I get this correctly. Yes, although that solution you mentioned is not going to be so simple because in South America, there are large distances between countries. So asking teams to fly around and play three games during a FIFA break is not going to be that easy. And remember, we're already behind because of COVID. Uh, they started much later than they ideally wanted to. And so they have sort of those games to make up. And and now you're further behind. And so, yeah, this was uh, quite the story to follow the last few days. It, there was a lot of uh, debate and deliberation about what should happen. Um, it, and it, it was some tasty games coming up. Argentina, it's it's two set of match days coming up in late March. Uh, Argentina was set to host Uruguay. Brazil was going to be away to Colombia. And then in the second of those match days, it was going to be Brazil hosting Argentina, which is obviously the glamour game in South American football. And the issue is that the European clubs did not want to release uh, their players for these games because the rules now are such that when these players came back to Europe, they would have to quarantine, causing them to miss important club games. And so Comrebol turned to FIFA for help and said, can you compel these European clubs to release players? And FIFA said, no, we can't help you out on this one. They have a point. And so uh, Comrebol decided then let's just move uh, these games. If, if teams aren't going to be able to call up their European-based players and have their biggest stars on the field, then it's not worth playing right now. So, so yeah, that, that's where we're at. It's a, it's a bit of a messy situation, uh, no pun intended. All right. Now, Mossy, correct me if I'm wrong, that this was a preemptive type of strike from the likes of Pep and Jurgen and, and uh, Jurgen Klopp and, and others out there in that they are still required to le- release the players. It was just on the backside in terms of the amount of time that they were going to have to spend when they came back that it just was untenable from their perspective to... Uh, to when they came back, not be able to have those players. Now, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that they could have just refused to release the players. I mean, they would have come up with a reason. Uh, it's a hamstring or something or something like that. But they made it very, very clear that this was not something that they were going to su- going to support. And and it brings up, uh, you know, a a. I mean, look. We know that blackout dates uh, when it comes to FIFA, you are required to uh, release players and. This whole game that goes back and forth, even in normal times, between uh, the the uh, the federation of whatever country you play for, the club of whatever country you play for, and then oftentimes that player that is put in the middle that that wants to play internationally and wants to represent their country, oftentimes, and then we go through the whole thing of it's an injury or is it really uh, is it really an injury right now? But but obviously when you have big voices like Pep and Jurgen talking about this stuff, it is going to, it's going to be a big deal. And all of this, it doesn't just affect the Liverpools and stuff. This affects all those different teams, especially teams with international players that get called and they are going to be going and 
it's it's not once again it's not just the uh, the actual trip itself it's what happens when they come back and different countries and different cultures have different rules and uh, and regulations uh, regulations out there I want to I want to talk in a second about the Olympic team Mossy but um, I know you have a, you have something to say about well, this. well a couple of things um, first off Conrad uh, Ball is forging ahead with the plan to play a Copa America this summer and a lot of people are pointing to that and saying boy wouldn't it be uh, wouldn't it make more sense to use those dates to try to make up these World Cup qualifiers? Uh, there's a real question about this Copa America this summer. Now, listen, we all would love an international tournament with Messi and Neymar and Suarez and James mm-hmm. Rodriguez, et cetera. But uh, the, the, the reason for a second Copa America in this cycle, remember there already was one in 2019, was they wanted to get on an even year cycle. So it was originally scheduled for 2020 and then moving forward, it was going to be 2024, 2028, et cetera. And then because of COVID, it got moved to 2021. And so a lot of people are saying, well, the sole reason for you staging a second Copa America in the cycle has now been undermined. So why are you still forging ahead with this? But it has to do with they need the television money and sponsorships that come yeah. from a, a big tournament like this. So so that that's become part of this whole debate. I know Tim Vickery wrote a piece today urging them to, to cancel the Copa America and use those dates for World Cup qualifying. The other thing that I found interesting is reading the articles in the Argentinian and Brazilian papers and the differing reactions to this whole situation. In Argentina, they're a lot more accepting of the notion that their best players play in Europe. And so... Uh, The idea that you'd play two crunch World Cup qualifiers against Uruguay and Brazil without Messi, without Lautaro Martinez and company was completely ridiculous to them. So the whole issue here was whether the European players were going to get released or not. And once it was determined that they were not, then the obvious thing to do was to postpone these games. Brazil views things a little bit differently. Brazil is a nation full of Alexi Lalases, people that have a chip on their shoulder about Euro snobbery and kind of bristle at this notion that all the best players play in Europe. And so in Brazil, there were a lot of people, there was a suggestion made, hey, why don't we play uh, these two match days with only domestic based players. And there were actually people in Brazil that were kind of relishing that and, and thought that would be kind of a, a fun opportunity to give players like Gabi Gol an oppor- a chance to lead the line. And they were somewhat disappointed that the games got postponed, even knowing that the European players weren't going to be released. So that was like an interesting little subplot of this whole thing. Oh, that's interesting <laughs> that that dynamic exists. Uh, exists. Look, I, I don't think that Brazil should apologize for believing in their domestic talent and their domestic league. You know, just because you know Argentina basically is admitting to the world that that uh, their domestic uh, talent isn't as good. That's fine if they want to do that. So I'm 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 Brazilian then, my friend. <laughs> Obrigado. <laughs> uh, all right. So let, let's see here. So uh, so we have that going on. Um, and uh, you know, with regards to releasing players, I, I just wanted to hit on this because um, the uh, U.S. Olympic team, which we're going to talk a whole lot about in the uh, in the future here, because we're televising the uh, the qualifying that's happening here in the next few weeks uh, uh, of Jason Christ and company and uh, the Olympic team down in, in Guadalajara, and. This is a team, I guess Brazil would love this team, by the way, because this is mostly a domestic-based uh, type of Olympic team that Jason Kreiss has brought down to uh, to Guadalajara to hopefully qualify for this summer's Olympics. And a reminder, something that hasn't been done in the last two cycles. It's a wasted and squandered type of oper- opportunity. But in that effort, okay, what we've come to find out is that there are 
teams that aren't releasing their players. And I don't think it's a surprise necessarily from the European teams, but now we're coming to find out that there are MLS teams that have decided not to re, uh, release their players uh, in uh, to go to this, this camp down in Guadalajara to be part of this really, really crucial uh, moment of possibly qualifying for Olympics. And, it, you know, so it, it, it brought up uh, a lot of questions for me as to what the responsibilities are for Major League Soccer relative to the national team. And I know the, the Olympic team isn't necessarily the full national team, but still an important team. And by the way, this one's going to be populated almost exclusively by MLS players. And what what clubs feel is their responsibility in terms of fielding, uh, providing players. Now, Atlanta, uh, Jason Christ thought that the players that play for Atlanta were going to be part of his squad, um, even up until a few days before he made the announcement, and it, it blew up. And Atlanta said, no, we're not releasing these players. And so those players aren't going to get the opportunity to play for Jason Christ and play for the U.S. down there in, uh, in qualifying. MLS from 1996 has been very, very clear about what it feels it's, is its responsibility towards helping uh, the U.S. national team. And that's, you know, that's noble, and I can appreciate that, although I am certainly on record saying I don't think that MLS or any individual team in MLS has a responsibility. But if that is going to be your mandate, if that is what, is what, what you're going to do, then this is weak, okay? And if you are Ernie Stewart, if you are Jason Kreiss, if you are Greg Berhalter, if you are Brian McBride, part of your job is to make sure that that relationship continues and that you are getting the players that you need in order to field a successful and a good national team. And they failed in that when it comes to Atlanta. And Carlos Bocanegra and Darren Eels down there have made their decision about what they feel is best for their club. They're under no obligation to release them for this Olympic qualifying. So this isn't a, a, a FIFA type of situation. Uh, but in doing so, they are... Uh, they they are constructing and part of uh, the construction of what is going to be a weaker qualifying team by their decision. Now they have Concacaf Champions League, and that's what they have said is the priority, and they don't want these players uh, on these players down there. But this should have been sorted out a long time ago. This should have been sorted out between the head of MLS, which is Major League Soccer's uh, commissioner, which is Don Garber, and the head over there uh, at uh, at the United States Soccer Federation, and all the leadership uh, when it comes to what's going on over there, from the president all the way to uh, to Ernie Stewart and everybody else there. This should have been sorted out, and they should have gotten together and said, this is what we're doing, or this is not what we're doing. But the fact that this came about at the 11th hour, I mean, that that's not good. That's not a good look for the United States Soccer Federation. It might not be a good look for Atlanta or, or an MLS relative to what I explained is what I think they want to do, but they got to make their decisions. And it's a pity. It's a pity that uh, that, that, uh, that that hasn't happened. And, you know, the, the release of players is always going to be this this strange dynamic, as I said, and too often, more more often than not, players are put in in the middle. And I get it. Look, you're you're getting paid a lot of money. It is your job ultimately to play for your club team, and you do certainly have a respect and a uh, and a connection and a loyalty to a loyalty to the people that are paying you. But you know, if you you know, Jason Christ was asked about the players from Atlanta that are not going to be involved, and he said, "Well, it puts them in doubt going forward." So, in essence, Atlanta has jeopardized their their possibilities going forward of them being involved 
on the Olympic team, which, by the way, is a stepping stone to the national team. And I don't know how that's going to go down with, uh, with players going forward. And, but this is, like I said, this is nothing new. This happens at clubs and in situations all the time. Sometimes players, are, are, you know, they stand behind their club or they use the club to deflect from a trip that they don't want to take or something they don't want. I'm just telling you right now, I would, I would go anywhere regardless of circumstance, in order to put that shirt on and represent my country. And that's just always how, how I felt and how important it was to me. It had nothing to do with, with money or anything like that. It was about the privilege and the honor of being able to do that. And look, from a practical perspective, I recognized that my brand and my value increased by being involved with national teams, whether I was younger and involved in the Olympic team or whether when I, when I got older and was involved in the national team. Uh, so, Mossy, you think that this all shakes out from a, a World Cup qualifi- qualification standpoint as having those three games uh, going forward and just everybody being on that. And even that in and of itself brings up a whole new way of coaching and how you pick your team and the, and the philosophy and the style and the strategy of how you, uh, how you go about uh, playing three games in that type of window as opposed to two games. Yeah, we're hopping back to Comrade Ball now. I'm just going back and forth, but you can, you know, uh, you yeah, can, uh, I think you can that's going to be- it's either way. It's about the, it's about yes, the players. It doesn't matter what tournament it is. If you don't have the players that you need, you are fielding a weakened team. Correct. Uh, but I do want to hop back to CONCACAF for one second, because okay. uh, another interesting subplot in the assembling of the rosters for this Olympic qualifying is the battle between the U S and Mexico for players. We had this scenario where Efren Alvarez was included in the preliminary roster for both countries. And then when the U S cut down theirs, he wasn't on it. So people took that to mean that he's probably leaning Mexico right now, but I covered a Liga Mex game last night, Santos Laguna against Necaxa. Santos Laguna have this 18-year-old phenom, this striker named Santiago Munoz, who scored last night and is taking Liga Mex by storm. He's been playing from Mexico at youth level, but he is eligible for the United States. They've approached him. Uh, We showed a quote last night from him saying that he's not closing any doors, and he was intrigued by the approach from the U.S. Uh, There was a player on the other side for Necaxa, Alejandro Zendejas, formerly of FC Dallas, who played for the U.S. at under-17 level, and then switched allegiances uh, and is now getting regular call-ups from Mexico at youth level and was included in their preliminary squad for this Olympic qualifying. You might recall when we first started doing this podcast back in early uh, 2018, there was a kid named Jonathan Gonzalez who everybody sure. thought was the second coming. And remember how red hot that issue was about which way oh, he was going to go. And I was thinking about this. I was talking about this with our colleague, Johnny Araya last night. I don't know if there's another scenario in the world where you have two countries because of the geography and the culture involved that go head to head for so many players. This whole dynamic in the U.S.-Mexico rivalry where they're, they're battling out for so many guys now, it seems, it's, it's absolutely fascinating to me. But where does this end, Masi? I mean, at a certain point, then it just becomes mercenary, right? So, I mean, at what point, if you're a federation, and I don't know if... if if you're precluded to doing this, I mean, these, these players are ultimately paid. So what point do you go to a young player and say, all right, we'll pay you money. You know I mean? If, if it's, if it's that important to your team, then why wouldn't you say, all right, here, here's a one-time fee in order to pick our country. Now that, that would hurt me to the core. Okay. <laughs> if that, if that ultimately happened, because it is the complete antithesis of the way I want a player representing my country or any country that they represent. Um, if you are in that mercenary capacity, then we might as well just throw it out the window. And we're just talking about club teams as opposed uh, as opposed to international and as opposed to uh, as opposed to countries. But 
you know, if this is a wooing process, if this is a recruitment, then the more you can provide and the better opportunities and resources, and I guess in this point, because they're all professional, the more money you can provide, wouldn't that be an incentive? And why wouldn't we just go about uh, doing something like that if, if these players are so important? I don't know, Mossy. Do you think it, it gets to that point? <laughs> there was a, a Brazilian striker named Ailton who uh, played in Germany, he helped Werder Bremen win the Bundesliga in 2004, and he was very annoyed that he didn't get called up for Brazil. And so he put it out there that he was a free agent at the international level and was willing to go to the highest bidder, whichever country wanted to pay him to move to that country for a couple of years and do whatever it took to be eligible. He would, he would be happy to do that, whatever country it was, which <laughs> was kind of ridiculous. I mean, it, it sounds ridiculous, but... You know, so what's the criteria other than just being a really good soccer player uh, for to play for your national team? And once again, I don't want, you know, I don't need a a, a purity test, but I do think that it's a difference, and there there has to be a marked difference between playing for your club and playing for uh, for your country. And would if if we went out and just bought up the best possible players and then went and won a World Cup. I mean, would 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 we really take any satisfaction in that? I don't think so. I don't think that that would it wouldn't signify that we've done something great or that suddenly, uh, you know, the the system that we have is is being validated. It wouldn't mean that soccer overnight changes. It would mean that we went out and we outspent everybody else and got the best quality and then went and won, which is what super clubs do. We would create a super club in the international. The dynamic between the U.S. and Mexico does remind me of two big college football programs from the same part of the country that are constantly duking it out for the same recruits. Uh, And, and, you know, the same thing that happens in college football is the fans get really worked up over some of these players and thinking they're going to be huge difference makers. And a lot of times they, it, 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 they don't pan out into anything and you end up feeling ridiculous looking back on it for getting so invested in it. And a perfect example of that is the guy I just mentioned, Jonathan Gonzalez, who has turned out to be a, a nothing and is a no factor for either program right now. And people in early 2018 were acting like it was like an apocalypse that the U.S. had missed out on that guy. Yeah, but a lot to your point, a lot of it is symbolic. And when these players do come and, and uh, commit to playing for the U.S., you know, we look at it as a feather in the cap of the United States Soccer Federation, and like I mentioned, the guy, people like Brian McBride and, and Greg Berhalter and uh, and Ernie Stewart uh, on the men's side doesn't really happen a whole lot uh, on the women's side, although we've seen uh, Macario and and that and that type of thing. But we do look at it as this is doing your job, and part of your job is that recruiting process, and that that would be, you know, something to point to as a success. Uh, going forward. And to your point, it doesn't mean that they <laughs> they amount to anything, but we just kind of put that and check that box and put that in our pocket um, and then go on from there. So I don't know. Either way, regardless of who gets uh, released, how they get released, uh, I just hope that this, uh, this Olympic team qualifies uh, for this summer. And we'll talk a whole lot more about it next week as the final roster gets released and we get closer and closer uh, to these games in CONCACAF uh, for Jason Christ and his Olympic team down there. And a reminder, it is under 23. So they were, what, they, normally it's under 23. This year, because it was uh, postponed a year because of the pandemic, it's actually going to be under 24. But 
it's still going to be called your under 23 Olympic team. And then you will have three overage players uh, if and when you qualify uh, for uh, for the summer that are able to be added to your roster. So we'll see how that goes. Mossy, uh, one more thing before uh, before we take a break here. And uh, it's a it's a story that came out last week. And I know we wanted to talk about it down there in Miami. Miami is the team that keeps on giving. Let's be honest. OK, Inter Miami, David Beckham's Inter Miami. So I don't know if you heard about this, Mossy. I'm sure you did. But uh, we we come to find out that uh, the good folks down there in Inter-Miami are now being investigated, formally investigated, so much so that MLS, uh, the league in which Inter-Miami plays in, actually put out a release saying as much that they are being investigated for um, inconsistencies, shall we say, and, and ultimately the possibility of the fact that they broke the league's laws and restrictions when it comes to the signing of Blaise Matuidi, who is a French international, World Cup champion, uh, and came over last year from Juventus. And he came over as a TAM player, and not to get too much in the weeds, but ultimately when it comes to how players are paid in Major League Soccer, if you're a designated player, which is what someone like him, everyone thought would have been, uh, you are paid uh, the majority of your salary salary from the owner. And that is off the books. That has nothing to do necessarily with the, uh, with the salary cap. And there was a lot of head scratching and eyebrows raised when Blaise Matuidi came over and was not a designated player. But there's ways that you can work the, uh, the system. And it was just assumed that that's exactly what they did. Now, come to find out that that's not necessarily the case, and you got to have done something for your own league, uh, and by the way, a single single entity, to very publicly come out and say that they are investing, uh, investigating this. Now, there was very little details, but ultimately what this comes down to, and it doesn't take a genius to figure this out, is something that has been guarded against and feared since the league uh, came into existence. We all know this is a, this is a, sing, a single entity, structure, and the collective is more important than the individual team, and there has been a real uh, desire to guard against any one team having too much of an advantage and a competitive advantage. That started to separate, but one of the things that was in place and was talked about, even you know back when the whole David Beckham rule came to be, was that people were going to circumvent the um, uh, the salary cap restrictions by paying people off the books. All right, so this person shows up as X on your salary cap, and that's what the league is ultimately paying this person uh, because it is a collective and it's coming by the league and you sign to the league. And then what happens is ownership will go to a, uh, go to a player and say, yeah, but we're going to give you this money or this sponsorship deal. And it's supposed to all be above board, but there's always the concern that, the, that things are happening. And this, that's a, that has got to be what the situation is here, is that the league found out. And once again, I have no inside information. I'm just thinking from the outside as to what this must be, is that they found out that there was something that was not right done by Inter-Miami. How is this ultimately going to going to play out? They'll probably get fined, okay? Because any uh, punitive punitive type of damage that you that you levy against uh, Miami is going to hurt Miami, right? And in essence, you are going to hurt the league. The league, and if you are an owner in the league, 
I'm not talking about competitive juices, but if you are an owner in a league and you are looking at your asset as the individual team and a part ownership of the entire league, you want a good Miami team. It helps with the valuation of your team. And so if you are going to hamstring it and hurt Miami for something that they have done, you in essence are hurting the collective and hurting yourself by what you do. So I think ultimately this is going to come down to Miami's going to pay a fine. Blaze Matuidi will maybe go to a designated player uh, or they'll fix it in, in a certain way. But it obviously was so far above and beyond that the league felt they needed to, uh, to deal with this. Mossy, do you think any, anybody ultimately cares about all these rules and regulations and restrictions when it comes to the league? Because if you're going to break the law... I mean, at least do it in an effort to make your team and indirectly the league better by going and signing a World Cup veteran and a World Cup winner. Yeah, but in a league that uh, takes pride in its parity and and all the rules are engineered that way with a salary cap and all the rest, you you don't want teams being able to circumvent that and and, and sort of cheat the system. Uh, There there was, uh, remember... In the NFL in the 90s, there was an incident with the San Francisco 49ers. They were found to be circumventing the salary cap and finding sort of underhanded ways to pay players. And they were stripped of draft picks, and it was a pretty big deal at the time. The NFL is another league that really prides itself on parity and and Mm -hmm. that salary cap system. And so I think in that respect, I think it is a pretty big deal. It's something that the league does need to stay on top of. Yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see ultimately if you know what the what the punishment uh, is, and if it's just a slap on the wrist uh, uh, going forward. But it was amazing to see that the league came out with that uh, with that public uh, uh, explanation. It was very short, very short and sweet, and it's an ongoing situation. Now, uh, I should make sure that everybody understands that they have not been found guilty of anything. They are presumed innocent until they are proven guilty of whatever it is that ultimately, uh, from a detail perspective, the league has found that they possibly violated. And if they are found guilty, I think they're just going to get, uh, they're going to get fined and we will go on. Look, I, I want Miami to be good. I want Miami to live up to the billing Part of the reason why it was so disappointing last year was because this is David Beckham's Miami. And it didn't live up to the big, bold, arrogant type of feel that they gave off. And that's not good. It's not, like I said, it's not good for Miami. It's not good, uh, uh, not good for the league. So we'll see how that, uh, that plays out. But I do want to mention that before uh, when we were talking about stuff that's happening over here domestically. All right, Mossy, anything else? That's it. All right, we went a little bit long in that uh, first segment, but it's okay, all right? Well, we think it's okay. I uh, hope you do too. We're going to take a real quick boi- uh, break. When we come back, We'll take a little trip around the rest of the world. Hello, State of the Union listeners. It is Alexi Lawless here to tell you about our brand new Fox Sports app and website, foxsports.com, reimagined for the modern sports fan. Go ahead and download the new app now. You don't even have to pause this episode. Every day on the new app and website, you'll see the top stories in sports plus a rich world of written content, videos, social media, and analytics to give you a 360-degree view of the most important stories of the day. You can favorite your favorite teams and players so you'll never miss an important update. Streaming live TV has never been so easy or elegant. Every Fox Sports game, including all pregame and postgame shows, are just one click away. For the extra invested fan, we also go deep with real-time wagering lines, trending prop bets, win probability, and key player projections. So 
Download the new Fox Sports app or visit www.foxsports.com. Okay, welcome back. Uh, let's take a little trip, Mossy, around uh, some some parts over there. I know we we, we hopscotched around with uh, with some FIFA and Concacaf and Comnibol type of stuff, but let's go over to Europe here and the uh, the Derby, and it is Derby. Okay, it's not Derby, it's Derby. Okay, if you're even going to use it, but the big the big game over there in Manchester, the Manchester Derby, was it all it was cracked up to be? Did you was was it everything that you thought it was going to be, Mossy? Uh, I no, I enjoyed it. Uh, and United uh, go in there and and beat City two nil. Uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer actually has a very good record at the Etihad, um, so it's a nice win for him. The only thing I'm going to say about Manchester City, look, when you've won 21 in a row in all competitions, you're allowed to lose a game. And they lost to the second place team. And they lost a game in which they conceded a penalty 30 seconds in, which is kind of a freak occurrence and played perfectly into United's hands because they were able to park the bus. Thanks, Brazil. Play on the counter the rest of the way. Um, So I don't want to make too much of this one result uh, from a Manchester City perspective, but I am wondering if Sergio Aguero is going to have any role to play the rest of the season because uh, he is the club's all-time leading scorer. He's one of the great strikers in Premier League history. He's not that old. He's only 32, and he he was fairly productive the last couple of seasons. Uh, this season, he's had all sorts of fitness issues. He's yet to score a Premier League goal, which is remarkable. Uh, his contract is up in the summer. He's probably going to leave. But in these remaining few months, you do wonder, is he going to have any role to play here? Because it, it, you that was the situation where you're – you're trailing at home, chasing a goal against a, a packed in defense and you have all the possession, but you lack an end product and you, you have Sergio Aguero sitting on the bench there and his body language was like, I know I'm not coming into this game. And so I, I do wonder about the Aguero situation. You know, I know there are folks like Matt Doyle banging the drum that LAFC should sign him in the summer. And that's a conversation for after the season. But for now, I mean, he's still on the team. You might as well use him. I'm, I'm a tad puzzled by Pep's handling of him. And, and, you know, if, if you're looking at City, they're going to win the Premier League, obviously, but a possible Achilles heel in the Champions League would be that lack of an end product sometimes because it seems like Pep has decided he's either going to go with the maddeningly inconsistent Gabriel Jesus or no striker and play like Foden up there or Sterling as a false nine. And he's confident that enough people are going to chip in goals. Obviously, Gundogan has scored a lot of goals from the midfield and Foden and those wide players and Mares and Torres and Sterling. Kevin De Bruyne will crank a shot every now and then. Even John Stones will get up there and score some goals. Uh, but there is something to be said for having that Lewandowski that Holland, that Mbappe, that Cristiano Ronaldo, and they don't have that right now. So that could potentially be the one Achilles heel. How dare you? How <laughs> dare you question Pep Guardiola? Okay, I mean, it's like it's like questioning Jose Mourinho when it comes to Bale or something like that. I mean, it's all about timing, Mossy. He's just waiting for the right time. All right, to unleash Aguero. I don't know when that's going to be. Uh, uh, you know, I I think you, but you're also a kind of you're you're a you're a pep apologist. Uh, this this was yes, of course, it's the end of a streak uh, and an incredible streak. They are still going to win the, the Premier League. They got plenty of cushion for something like this, and everything that you said is true. But it's still disappointing. And this this is where, and, and my mind goes back to this often. This is where environment, or I guess the case may be lack of environment, can can play into it. I mean, with without fans and without sixty thousand people screaming and yelling, it 
yes, something is lost. And if you don't bring it yourself and if you can't manufacture uh, the motivation yourself, it can very quickly get away from you. Now, look, I'm not saying that that's the reason why your friend, your Brazilian friend over there decided in the first minute to, <laughs> to come back and defend and not even defend. I use that term very, very loosely. It was not defending. That was just putting feet in and seeing what, uh, seeing what happened. But yeah, I mean, it's still, it's still a good team. It's still, you know, potentially a great team uh, uh, right now. Um, but while I can, I can say that they are a great team, is, is Manchester United a good team? <laughs> I mean, because this, it's, it's this yo-yo back and forth of this team and what they are and what they, uh, what they aren't. I mean, we can all agree that Liverpool is not a great team, okay? But I'm, I'm, I'm asking you, Mossy, and I think I've asked you this before, but I, I'm going to keep asking you. Is Manchester United a great team, given what you saw? Because you just kind of excused it as ah, just one of those days, an anomaly type of thing. Do you think that they're? Do you think they're a great team? No, not a great team. But uh, as Graham Lasso said uh, during the telecast, of course City are going to win the Premier League. So now it's a battle to, to be the best of the rest. And I, I think United have stamped themselves as probably the second best team in the Premier League this season. Uh, now they're going to have to fight hard to hold on to that. But uh, and so I'm not even thinking about this in terms of the title. I'm thinking about United avoiding getting dragged back into that top four scrum. So this was a big result in that regard. Um, so, yeah, I mean. So after all is said and done, it's basically second place for United. Correct. Which is what, correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't that what, wasn't that what uh, Justin Mourinho did? It was second place. Uh, yeah, he had a season where they finished second, 19 points behind City, who finished with 100 points. And so Mourinho right. basically said, look, there really wasn't a title to be won this season because of how good City was. So all we could hope for was to be the best of the rest, which we achieved that. So it kind of has that same vibe this season. Same thing. Same thing. Uh, okay. Well, uh, anything else uh, from over there in uh, England that you want to touch on, Mossy? Because we're going to touch on the VAR situation, as always. It's evergreen uh, later on in our Ask, Alex uh, on our Ask Alexi site. Uh, anything else, Mossy, from England? American note before we move on to Spain. Daryl DK scored a great goal for Barnes yes. against Birmingham. He has three and four games. So uh, Daryl DK. And look, we we are desperate. We are, you know, my my kingdom for a goal scorer when it comes to the U.S. national team. And so when Daryl DK, uh, you know, scores a goal or or others, well, actually, it was a good weekend for goal scorers, American goal scorers. Uh, we just we we get crazy in a, in a good way. Um, in that we want somebody and we're desperate for somebody. I mean, the interesting thing about him, regardless of the national team uh, situation, is does he even come back to MLS? Does he even come back uh, to Orlando? Because it's a loan. There is an option to buy, and whether uh, you know whether it's you know whether it's Barnsley or anybody else uh, out there, they will have seen this. And there's nothing that brings people quicker uh, with bigger um, uh, with bigger uh, wallets than somebody that is consistently scoring goals. And whether it's Barnsley or anybody else, they're going to need that going forward. So that's really going to be interesting. So it's good for it's good for DK. Potentially could be good for the U.S. men's national team. Uh, I guess it's good for Orlando in that they might sell a player and make a lot of money, but they're also going to lose one of their major goal scorers. Oh, that's all right. Don't worry about it. They, they got Pato. Um, speaking of Brazilians, great Brazilians, right, Mossy? Uh, all right, so uh, should we go over to uh, Spain then, yep, Mossy? let's do it. All right, what happened over there in Spain? That was uh, another derby, right? Derby, derby. How do you say it over there in uh, in uh, in in uh, in Spain, Mossy? Oh, I guess classical. We'll call it. Well, everything's a classical yeah. then. 
All right, fine. Okay, um, another Clásico. The Madrid Clásico. Um, so, 1-1, um, Atletico Madrid, uh, Real Madrid. And Atletico have to be sick uh, because mm -hmm. uh, they played a really good game. They, they jumped out ahead with Luis Suarez. A beautiful goal uh, on a feed from Llorente, who was facing his former club. And to their credit, Atletico did not sit on this lead. They kept attacking, uh, created good chances, really should have killed off this game. Courtois came up with some big saves in the second half to keep Real Madrid in it. And, you know, you were wondering, where was this Atletico Madrid team against Chelsea? Because they were so negative that day. And this was the more expansive Atletico that we had seen in La Liga this season, which was nice to see and made for a more entertaining game. But as they're missing chances to make it 2-0, uh, you keep thinking in the back of your mind, oh, they're, they're, they're letting Real Madrid off the hook here. And the longer this stays 1-0, you know that Real Madrid are going to find that equalizer late. And, and sure enough, the momentum in this game started to shift around the 70-minute mark. And then Real Madrid did raise their game and started to create some chances. Benzema had an unbelievable opportunity he squandered right before he scored the goal, uh, where Oblak denied him from close range after a pass from Vinicius. Uh, but then the, the sequence uh, leading up to the equalizer was incredible because Atletico had a two-on-one break and if Luis Suarez had put the right touch on the ball, Saul would have been clean through on goal. Instead, he uh, played a heavy ball to him. It didn't come to anything. And Real Madrid go back the other way. And Casemiro, who was unbelievable in this game, and you felt like there were 10 of him on the field because he was breaking up plays on one end and then popping up on the box at the other end. And sure enough, that's what happened here. Uh, and beautiful move where he exchanged passes with Benzema and Benzema puts it away. And so Real Madrid get a, a point which going into the game, you might have said, boy, if you're Real Madrid, you really want to cut into this lead, so you want to win. But actually, the way the game played out, Real Madrid were the happier of the two teams with the draw, and Atletico felt like they really missed a chance to, to take command of this title race again and kind of stave off this threat of Real and Barcelona sort of creeping up on them. Yeah, bad, bad, bad for Atletico. Uh, that, that is not the points that you want to drop. And they had their opportunity there, and they've squandered it. And they might look back on this as that pivotal moment. Llorente, uh, I thought, was really, really good. Um, potentially best guy on the best player on the field. Luis Suarez still his his runs in the box are, are just incredible. The way he gets free and the the uh, the pathways that he chooses when the ball goes wide. And you know, he, he like you mentioned, there were a couple where you know if not for good saves or or, or slide tackles or, or whatever. I mean, he gets frees for, and he's not. I mean, he's a big guy, kind of. You know, it's it, it, the way he plays is much more lumbering, and yet there is, you know, there is this freedom in in the way that he moves in the box, uh, which is really impressive. The layoff for the uh, uh, for the goal to Benzema was just a thing of beauty because everybody's attention was as he broke as Casemiro broke through, and then just to pull it back, and basically he put it in an, in in a uh, in an open goal in an open goal. So I think even though it was a tie. Um, it lived up to it. It lived up to being one of the uh, the good games. And I think absolutely to your point, uh, one side is looking at that one point in the form of Real Madrid and saying, oh yeah, here we go. And the other side is going, uh-oh. Just one last thing on that Suarez goal. What a crafty finisher he is because when he gets that ball, you're thinking he's going to try to side foot it. And instead he takes yep. that extra second, turns his body around and then with the outside of his foot curls it in, which was a very unusual way to strike that ball from where he received it. Huh? 
It was beautiful. <laughs> and they had a great they had a great shot from behind the goal so you can see. So not only does he have to do that, but he also has to do the calculation in all those milliseconds that he has enough time to adjust his body to do that and that the defender cuz he ha- he already knows that he's broken that uh, 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 that connection and that closeness with the defender which gives him the time to be able to do it. And for a goalkeeper, it is the worst cuz you're, you're thinking, all right, well, the right foot, you still got to go across the body, which makes it that much easier to save. Now, if you're the outside of the foot, you can hit it farther around the post to be able to bend it uh, back if you're not going to use your left foot. So you're absolutely And by the right, way, the more I great. think of it in Spain, they say derby. So it's the same word, but they just say it with a Spanish accent. Do they really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Was there a uh, enye or something? Yeah. No. no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, okay, so that's, uh, that's the derby. <laughs> or the classic or whatever that happened over there. Um, should we go to Germany? Absolutely. Oh, all right. So their classic car, all right, happened. But before we get to that, um, we were talking about uh, young and uh, not even young, but just regular goal scorers and American goal scorers out there. But more importantly, uh, redheaded ones out there. And we don't have a lot of them out there. Um, so... Congratulations to Josh Sargent. He, for a number of years now, has been the heir apparent, um, has yet to really grab a hold of it, but certainly playing with Bremen is not the easiest thing to do for any goal scorer, and he still finds ways to be dangerous and, and gets his goals. Congratulations to him because he becomes the second youngest American to reach double-digit goals in the Bundesliga at the age of 21. Christian Pulisic, if you remember, uh, is the youngest. And he scored again uh, this weekend. Actually, uh, really nice goal. Uh, finished it off well. And that's a good thing. So when you see Daryl Dike scoring over in England, when you see Josh Sargent scoring over in uh, in the Bundesliga, and for a team that is that is very very difficult to play for from an attacking perspective and doesn't get a lot of opportunities, these are these are good things. And then uh, we had Der Klassiker. Anything uh, you want to mention before we go to uh, Der Klassiker? Uh, no, no. Let's go to it. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. Um, I'm tempted to say that this was underwhelming in that we've seen this movie before. And yet it's I can see this movie time and time again. And it for some reason, it doesn't get old. I know there are people that are going to use this as an example of just how good Bayern Munich is as a team and therefore how predictable things can be. But there is some sense of gratification when you have a moment where you know it's coming. You can't stop it. And from a neutral's perspective, there is a joy in seeing the fear in the opposition that ran out to a 2-0 lead and then having Bayern Munich... You can see it in their eyes. You can see it in their play. There's no panic, and then it comes, and there is nothing you can do to stop it. And it doesn't. It, it still hasn't gotten old. I feel like it should be getting old, and it hasn't gotten old, Mossy. I don't know. What, what about it's you? It's funny the way you framed that. Uh, I thought I was going to have, by saying it was underwhelming, I thought that was going to be like a giant hot take, but it, but it seems like you, you think that that's the prevailing opinion, so maybe it's not such a hot take. But yeah, I just, the, the tweets I read, uh, acted like this was some like 90 minute uh, edge of your seat thriller. And I I got to tell you, I didn't think this was that great a game. Dortmund jumped out to this freak 2-0 uh, lead. Of course, Holland, Holland. Uh, but once this game settled down, there was only one team on the field. Dortmund did nothing in the last 80 minutes. And there was this 
air of inevitability about Bayern winning, so much so that I think it lulled them into a sense of complacency at times. I didn't think the second half they played with that much urgency and really uh, they were kind of in second gear because they sort of knew the goal was going to come. And frankly, they sort of cut it close because once you get to the 80-something minute, you start to think, oh my God, are Bayern actually going to drop points to this completely overmatched Dortmund team that's missing several key players? Uh, and and they get the goal from Goretzka and, and so they win. And and yeah, I know, six goals and Holland scores two and Lewandowski three and sort of on paper, you think about that, you think, oh my God, this must have been riveting. But I don't know. I, I wasn't like that riveted by this game just because the, the Dortmund lead just didn't feel real to me. And it just, there was just sort of this air of inevitability throughout about Bayern winning. Oh, I, I, I don't think so. I was riveted. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. But I guess, I guess my question to you then would be, were you more disappointed in the Dortmund performance or the Bayern Munich performance? Well, Dortmund, uh, like I said, are, are missing a lot of guys. So you got to be fair. Uh, I'm not even going to bring up Witzel, who got injured a while ago and is out for the season. But they lose a Kanji yeah. a couple weeks ago. That's a big miss at the back. They lose Sancho, who after a slow start this season had been in scintillating form the last few weeks. They lose Rafael Guerrero. They lose Gio Reyna. And then even during this game, Holland has to come off uh, early yep. in the second half, which was a terrible blow. And I mean, they finished, Dortmund finished that game with a lineup that, was like an ICC line, <laughs> not, not a team that you want uh, out on the field the last 15 minutes at the Allianz Arena when you're trying to get a result. Um, so uh, so I'm going to be fair to Dortmund and say there were some mitigating circumstances. I know people, a lot of people went down the road of, of course, this is Dortmund choking. And, but, I, I mean, to be fair, they, they were missing a lot of their, their key players. Um, uh, yeah, I wasn't disappointed in Bayern. I just didn't think this was kind of like an A-plus boy, they were really pushed and had to like reach back and it brought out the absolute best in them. I, I saw a lot of those takes on Twitter and that wasn't how I felt about that game. I felt like they 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 kind of did just enough and they, they, they knew they were going to win throughout and, and they did. They, they... You are you are such a snob. You are such a snob. It is just, we can't, you, you just can't even have nice things. I mean, we we give you this on a platter, uh, by the way. And, and uh, I think part of the, the pump up is just in normal circumstances. It is a classic type of matchup and people pay attention. It was put on, uh, uh, on ABC, um, for, uh, you know, ESPN uh, decided to put it on ABC. And so there was a, a platform for it. We got goals. The big stars showed up and scored those goals. So it had everything that you would, that you would want, um, that you were underwhelmed on these, says much more about you than it does about the actual no, listen, game. If, if it was us and we put this game on Fox and we got six goals and two from Holland and three from Lewandowski, we would have been touting it as the yep. greatest game in history. So I don't begrudge uh, ESPN at all. Uh, but I just thought it was a, a better game on paper than in practice. Is that, does that make sense? Like, okay, that's, <laughs> that's fair enough. You know, Mossy was not entertained. All right. So back to the drawing board for both of you. And as a league, Bundesliga. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Mossy, anything else uh, that we want to talk about here uh, when it comes to over in well, Europe? Uh, let's just do a quick uh, Champions League preview for the week. And yep. ending on Holland uh, is a perfect segue because uh, he had to come off early in the second half against Bayern. But it sounds like he's OK and he will be able to feature for Dortmund tomorrow. Uh, they are home protecting a 3-2 lead against uh, Sevilla. Sevilla team I was very high on a couple weeks ago, and that first leg defeat to Dortmund kind of sent them on a tailspin. So they're not 
uh, all that confident right now. And, and those three Dortmund away goals uh, are, you know, very valuable. So, you know, I know Dortmund are flaky and, and nothing's ever guaranteed for them, but uh, they are in pretty good shape in this matchup. Uh, it's the other game on Tuesday that, that people really are excited about, which is Juventus trying to overturn a two, one deficit against Porto and, uh, Oh, that's right. Uh, Rory Smith, who you know I love, wrote a really nice piece about Weston McKinney today and his uh, rise at Juventus. So a uh, big game for him tomorrow, obviously for Cristiano Ronaldo. We had that conversation last week about people like Antonio Cassano suggesting that Juve's results in the Champions League make it where the Ronaldo signing has been a failure. Well, boy, if they get knocked out this week, you're going to hear a lot of people with that take. Uh, so it's a lot of pressure on Juve. Uh, so. Ooh. That's right. All right. Well, a lot of stuff to watch um, uh, when it comes to uh, Champions and then, League. Uh, and then Wednesday, uh, Liverpool looking to protect a 2-0 lead against Leipzig. Uh, this game will be played in Budapest, which uh, also where the first leg of this tie was played in. Budapest has become to European soccer what Orlando is to American soccer. It's like, when in doubt, let's go to Budapest. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Right? Are they not suffering from the coronavirus? But I guess not. Um, uh, so listen, Liverpool in great shape, but... Uh, with Liverpool right now, I'm not taking anything for granted, so who knows? Right. And then uh, PSG are home looking to finish off Barcelona. Remember, they have a 4-1 first leg advantage thanks to that Mbappe hat trick. Uh, and look, this match is occurring almost four years to the day of Barcelona's incredible comeback in 2017. So people are wondering if history is going to repeat itself. It is very different circumstances. That second leg was in Barcelona in a packed stadium. Barcelona had Messi, Neymar, and Suarez, plus Iniesta pulling the strings in the midfield. That was a PSG team led by uh, Unai Emery with no Mbappe. Now they have Mbappe. It's Pochettino. They're at home. And Neymar, who was the catalyst for that great comeback in 2017, uh, sounds like is going to be available for PSG in this one. Uh, to be honest, his race to be fit for this game has made me a little bit uncomfortable. There's a vibe of like, well, Mbappe did all the hard work in the first leg, and now Neymar just wants to be able to dance in the grave of his former team. And I hope this doesn't go the way of him being on the bench. They bring him on for the last 20 minutes when the tie is already decided, and he starts doing a bunch of tricks and showboating and trying to rub it in Barcelona's face, because that, that would be that would annoy me, even as a Neymar defender. Um, so... Well, I mean, I think you're assuming. What what if what if he starts and another crazy thing happens and <laughs> and he ends up being the uh the reason. <laughs> you know, what if he starts and Barcelona, who we know is not the Barcelona of uh, of past comes through. That would be incredible. Barcelona huh? who and we we'll could... end on this have a new president and it is their old president, uh Joan Laporta who served as president from 2003 to 2010. Uh, he, he previously took over in the summer of 2003 when they were in crisis and signed Ronaldinho and put together that team on the right card that won back-to-back -back La Liga titles in the Champions League in 2006. Uh, and then in the summer of 2008, he appointed Pep and, 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 and he was there when Messi really came to prominence and they won that treble Pep's first season. Um, and so this is a little bit Barcelona, a little bit of nostalgia and reaching back into their recent past, but uh, a very successful period and hoping that he can sort of unlock that key again. And also the fact that uh, he has, uh, I guess, a pretty good relationship with Messi. People are hoping that by electing this guy, it, he might be able to sway Messi into Stengs. He's got to deliver. I mean, this I is, that. you know, this is, you, you got to deliver on your campaign promises. <laughs> so. All right, well, we'll see how that all plays out on and off the field. Anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, oh, yeah, it's time for Ask Alexi. Don't go anywhere.
Okay, we're back, and it's time for Ask Alexi. You send those uh, questions, comments, and concerns in with that hashtag Ask Alexi, or Ask Mossy for that matter, on all the social media platforms out there, and we pick a few each week and read them off, ones that uh, tickle our fancy. What, uh, what do the folks want to know about this week, uh, Mossy? First up, Pete in D.C., MLS salary cap, good or bad? Interesting, Pete. Um, good or bad? I, I think if I can only pick one, I'd say good. Okay, but here, here is my... Here, here, here's why it's good, and I'm also going to give you why it's bad. So here's why it's good. Um, it has enabled MLS, as we've said time and time again, to uh, not just survive, but to thrive and become the most successful league in uh, Canadian and American history when it comes to soccer. And that's something in and of itself, going into its 26th year. And a lot of it is down to uh, the prudent management and structure um, and the fiscal responsibility uh, and some of those constraints and restraints uh, that uh, have been put in place for the teams and the leagues that started in 1996 and have continued on. Now, some of them have been loosened, uh, but for the most part, it is still uh, been able uh, enabled them to manufacture not only a successful league, but one with unique and special parity. Uh, we've talked about that. And that is very, very important to the ownership and to the structure of the league and what they believe is best for uh, for that, bin- uh, that business. Sub- separation has happened, but certainly not to the extent that exists uh, around the world. So, you know, that that is good. It's also helped to control costs. Um, and as I said, it has made the league, um, arguably from top to bottom, the most competitive professional league in the world. Um, bad. It has inhibited and uh, curtailed those that want to spend. And that in and of itself at times is painful to know and to see. It is a collective and, and everybody understands that as ownership. But there is differing opinions when it comes to how much you should be allowed to spend and what rules and regulations should be in place when it's those owners' meetings. And there are owners, absolutely, that if given the opportunity, would go out. That's Bob in the background barking. But, you know, he, he doesn't agree with me all the time. But don't worry, Bob. We've talked about this before. Uh, there are, if given the opportunity, could go out there and would go out there and spend more money, which would increase the level of and quality of play of their team on the field, which would increase the competition, which would increase eyes um, and people that were into the league. And they are not necessarily allowed to do that to the extent that they want to do, uh, want to do that. So, um, so if you put all of that together, I would still rather, because if you don't have the salary cap, there is the potential that it gets away from you and the league lasts three or four years, there's a huge separation, there's not necessarily people caring about, and there's certainly not the, uh, a situation where you have ownership that wants to come in, and you kill, that, uh, you kill that league. And it folds just like a lot of leagues in the past. So if we're looking at something like that, I would still say that it is good if I have to pick one. Uh, next up, uh, Frankie Kiffin, uh, keep or scrap VAR. Now, we are going to use this question as a jumping off point to discuss all the IFAB handball offside news from the past few days. But before we get yep. to that, Alexi, any big picture thoughts on VAR right now? You definitely keep it. Uh, even if you don't even like it, you keep it because I think to go backwards would be 
would cause even more problems and more angst and more consternation from people out there. That train has left the station a long time ago, and it's not coming back. We've said time and time again, if you were to, you know, I think that I think there's a lot of people that are looking back and it's kind of revisionist history when it comes to the way that they see the game and they're romanticizing a time, but they forget about the, the pleading and the begging and the desire to get the call right when we have the technology uh, out there, which is what, what VAR has done. Has it changed the way we view the game? Has it changed the, the fundamental, fundamentally the game? Yeah, it has. But that's not going to change. And if you go back to what you envision or you, what you think and perceive of what it used to be, the problem is, is that those of us uh, from a uh, broadcasting perspective are going to continue to draw lines and to give you the opportunity to show that was a bad call. This is a, 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 a miss and a failure here. And that's, that's not a good thing because we go right back to where we started, where you have people complaining that we have the technology at our disposal to get these things right. Huge, huge calls that have ramifications in terms of both emotional ramifications for, uh, for people that watch the game and practical, even business and financial uh, ramifications that come uh, that, uh, uh, with regards to the game. So I think that when it comes to VAR, absolutely you keep it. You continue to evolve and you continue to tweak it here or there. And that's certainly something that's, uh, that's being done. Even as we speak, it's being done. Uh, the, the English just can't figure it out. Everybody else seems to have figured it out. And it's not that there aren't controversies out there or there isn't debate out there, but each and every week, as we said last week, it's just, it's just a steady diet of the English game not being able to figure out how to wrap their little brains around VAR and not doing it right. And they're going to change it uh, and they're going to change it again. But scrapping it, um, especially if you are the only ones that scrap it, you are going to look like you are you have devolved and you are going to look like you don't care about the game. I don't know, Mossy, what do you think? Well, uh, whether you like VAR or hate VAR, I think one place where we all meet and are all frustrated is the lack of clarity and the inconsistency regarding the handball rule. Um, mm-hmm. And there were several incidents in the last few days. Last week, you had that uh, N'Golo Kante play in the Liverpool-Chelsea match. Uh, this past weekend in that Atletico Madrid-Real Madrid uh, game late in the first half, there was a controversial play involving Felipe, Atletico defender. Uh, you had that Fulham disallowed goal against Tottenham, that Joshua Maja situation. And um, and so in the midst of all this, IFAB have come out in an effort to uh, clarify the rule. Now, they, they claim it wasn't in response to any of these incidents. This is stuff that's been in the pipeline <laughs> yeah. for months, and it's just coincidence that they're announcing it now. But they've decided to make a change, and this will uh, come into play July 1st. Uh, no longer, um, if, the, if there's a... Uh, handball in the lead up to a goal, the way it's been recently is that regardless of whether that handball is intentional or not, it it has to be called. And so any handball from attacking player in the lead up to a goal, it negates the goal. That is no longer going to be the case after July 1st. It's still going to fall into sort of an interpretation of whether the handball was intentional or avoidable or not. It's no longer an automatic that that has to be whistled a handball. And then they've sought to clarify even uh, defensive handball, uh, I had it right here. Um, uh, IFAB also moved to clarify the interpretation of defensive handball, underlining that handball should only be considered if they position 
if the position of their arm is not a consequence of the player's body movement for that specific situation. Well, that clears it up. I think we're, <laughs> no, no, but my favorite part of this whole article is there's a guy named David Elray, who's the IFAB technical director, who's the bloke who's in charge of all this stuff. And he says, look, handball is always going, Handball is always going to be subjective. The only way we could avoid it being subjective is if we made it where if the ball hits your hand, it's a handball. And he says it in this tone of clearly that's ridiculous and we're never going to do that. And I don't know, I'm sort of increasingly coming around to your view that maybe that is the only solution to this problem. It is. They have these these changes have actually only made it more difficult. At least there was definitive uh, there was definitive words in this law that said, look, it doesn't matter if it's intentional or not. If it hits your hand, we're going to call it. So, and, and and by the way, we're not necessarily yelling about VAR right here. We're, we're we're yelling about the laws here because everybody could see it. VAR just enabled us to see it again. Then the interpretation of the laws that's what everybody is is yelling about here. But they're not. They're not doing anything to help uh, to help the game. Now, as a matter of fact, when it goes along, all right, where in the past, at least you might not you might not agree with the law, but nobody's arguing as to what the law states. I love it when we come on air and whoever the host is says, well, according to the letter of the law, this was correct. But and then the conversation <laughs> ensues. All right. Well, what what people have complained about for years is the ambiguity uh, or the, the the you know the nuance or the lack of clarity when it comes to the laws. And then when the laws actually have some definitive type of clarity, everybody gets up in arms because they don't like the laws and screaming and yell. So in order to rectify that, because let's be honest, the English have been screaming and yelling. In order to rectify that, what have they done? Well, they're going to make it more subjective going forward. Okay, fine. If that's what you want to do, fine. But I don't think that this this solves anything. So the second part of this story is offside. Uh, no changes have been made as of yet, but Arsene Wenger uh, unveiled this proposal in which um, if, the, if the attacking player, if any part of his body is level with the last defender or technically the second to last defender, uh, because you know we tend to take for granted the goalkeeper in that situation, that a player would then be onside. And there's quotes here from the IFAB guy saying it's it's worth considering and we'd have to test it and it would take a while to, to make that change, but but they're not like closing the door on that. So that that's a Wenger proposal. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, what are they going to say? Mr. Wenger doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, they're going to be diplomatic in the way that they said it, but it, it doesn't change anything. You just make it another line, okay? And now we're going to be arguing about that line. Now, it, it changes the way that you play, in that you're, you know, when you're looking down that line as a, as a center back or as an outside back and stuff like that, but you're not, you're, we're, like I said, you're just, you, some point somebody has to draw a line and then we're all going to argue it. My, I, I love it when people say, well, you know, it was, it was so minute and it was such a small little uh, area and there should be this, this buffer zone. Well, a buffer zone is just drawing two lines then. Okay. And whether that person is in that line is what we're going to be arguing about. So Arsene Wenger, He's not solving anything. He's changing it so that where where that line is ultimately drawn now is different, but we're still arguing about the line. Although I am in favor of this because making this the rule, one thing we can all agree on is, I know you've said this before, is goals are good. We want goals. 
And, yep. and I'm happy for the rule to be written in such a way that it really drives home the point that we're trying to give the benefit of the doubt to the attacking player. And I think VAR has a bit of a PR problem right now. It feels like much more of a goal taker than a goal giver. <laughs> and maybe if we change the rule to what Wenger proposed, uh, maybe the feel of that will change a little bit and people won't be as up in arms about it. So I- I'm happy for any change that feels like it's going to benefit the attacking player and perhaps lead to more goals. Absolutely. Look, I I love it. I mean, you know, the whole thing of even is on and every and everything. So, I mean, in theory, what you could do uh, is just because he said any part of the attacker, right? Not just the part that can score. He said any part of the attacker. So you could take your pointer finger and instead of just playing on that line as forwards are. Uh, apt no, it does to do, say a part of the body that can score. Okay. All right, that can score. So you can drag your foot as you are a foot and a half in front that normally you would be offside, but you're dragging your foot, and so your pinky toe is actually onside. But then we're going to, you know, once again, that line is going to be there. Was the pinky toe really there? And Was he really onside? And, oh, well, you know, it's so close that you should let it go. No, that's the whole point, is that, yes, it's close, but we still have to draw a line. This is ridiculous. I don't want to keep saying this. I mean... <laughs> I love Arsene Wenger, and I love the fact that people are trying to think about this. And to your point, I, I listen. I even as a defender, I want as much advantage to people that score goals as possible. Defenders will adapt, attackers will adapt, adapt. Everybody will adapt. But once everybody has adapted, then we're right back where we started in terms of uh, looking in a line and seeing well. That was a human drawing the line, and do they really know? And if are they really calculating the pixels or the delay, or uh, is the line thick enough or thin enough, and where that actual line is, and are the angles right, and all that different stuff? All right, Mossy. Anyway, what's uh, next? so? One on this, a uh, little context here. You were going back and forth on Twitter with people about uh, youth development, and you said a line in one of your tweets. You said, uh, "Successful youth, successful U.S. youth player development is not simply about creating better soccer players." So then uh, this guy, Mia San Champions, uh, replied, and this is what we're using as the question here. Then what is the goal if it's more than creating better players? The most successful men's national team players have moved to other countries during prime years to get higher quality game time, while youth in certain areas of the country can't afford to get into the game. Okay, it's an interesting question. And you know what? Here's, here's what I'm going to do, okay? Because I think that this question can actually can actually be my one for the road, okay? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a real quick break here. I'm going to come back and I'm going to answer this question because I think it 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 is a one for the roady type of thing here, Mossy. Can I do Absolutely. that or not? It would even save us some time. All right, listen, let's, let's do that. We're going to take a real quick break. And when I come back, I am going to tell you in my one for the road why that... Why it's more than just about creating better soccer players. So don't go away. I'll be right back. All right, we're back and we've completely deviated from our normal schedule. I hope it hasn't thrown anybody for a loop. But I I, I got this, uh, this third Ask Alexi question. And I had thought about it a little while, and then I was thinking, you know, th- this is this is much more of a one for the road type of of thing because I talk about this a lot, and it might be something that you've already heard me talk about, but I think it I think it does bear re- re- repeating. And so, to Mia San's uh, champions, who was going back and forth on Twitter with me because you know, I, as you mentioned, Bossy, I was talking about how 
it's not just about making better uh, better soccer players. It is in in the way that I look at it. Okay about making better people. And I've told you time and time again that I will gladly, gladly pass up the opportunity for the U.S. men or women for that matter to win a World Cup if in doing so we are producing a generation of players who are ill-equipped to deal with life, okay? I do believe that it has to be, even at the highest level, something more Something more than simply producing better soccer players. Uh, you are in charge of these, in many cases, young men and women. You are in charge of molding them. And the vehicle in which you are using to do this molding is soccer. And you are imparting knowledge, um, both in terms of how to kick a soccer ball on the field and how to function off the soccer field, and as it gets more elite, and as it gets more focused, and as it gets more competitive, our tendency and our natural tendency is to start to shed some of those other responsibilities in an effort to produce better uh, soccer players. And you know, when it comes to this this exodus, this that we are championing and, and talking about right now, and Right, rightfully so, because it is an exciting time with all of these different uh, these different players and that are going overseas. And as we continue to hopefully have more of them that are taking these different pathways that we have, as we continue to look at um, holding them up as records and examples of our quote unquote success out there, well, the success isn't just about where they have gotten as soccer people. And of course, look, if you can have both, that's great. And if your job is ultimately to produce a better soccer player, you can certainly turn around and say, look, this is a better soccer player, okay? And this person is better for having gone through this process than this other person. But when we look at it, you're still not just talking about a soccer player. You're talking about a person. Um, and... You know, to uh, Mia-san's champions, uh, and I'll read the, qu- the, uh, the comment again. He said, then what is the goal if it's more than creating better players? The goal is, as I said, through soccer to create better people. And that might be aspirational, okay? Uh, that might be diluted in terms of the way that I think. That might be unrealistic, or that might be romantic in the way that you might see it, or others may see it. But that's how I see it, and that's how I see sports in general, and that's how I see using soccer as that tool to create better people. You know, to, to his point here, saying the most successful men's national team players have moved to other countries during prime years to get higher quality game time, while youth in certain areas of the country can't afford to get into the game. You know, those are, those are a couple of different things there that you're talking about. Yes, we are having players that at a younger age are making that jump over to Europe. And we will talk about and we will highlight the ones that are successful. And you know what we won't talk about? And you know what we will very quickly forget and even at times ignore? Are the ones that don't make it. And the ones that were set off on a path and maybe were promised something that never ultimately came to fruition. And I worry about them. And I worry about people, once again, abdicating that responsibility to them as we get better and quote-unquote bigger uh, 
and stronger as a soccer playing nation. And we have the opportunity to create something different. We have the opportunity to create a pathway and a system that looks holistically at the player as opposed to just the kicking of the ball or as opposed to just that career time frame that for most players is, I don't know, let's say five years or six years, but can be defining and can be very, very important. And so that's the way that I, I think about those things. And I know I've said some of this uh, before. Like I said, it does bear repeating when we're talking about going forward because we are in a very interesting time right now and a time that we are all pointing to as a very successful uh, moment right now with all of this talent and all of these opportunities that are available. And we just got to make sure that we remember that it's still a very, very small percent that ultimately get to that promised land and a very small percent that become elite of all of them that we have uh, cultivated. And I know that that's the case in a lot of sports and in a lot of industries out there, but I do think we have a greater responsibility than simply creating a better soccer player. Uh, anything else, Mossy, before we head out? No, that's it. I have just received an email from Luis Aguilar's agent saying now that he's on-air talent, his contract needs to be renegotiated. So, uh, Well, uh, he, he got all of his hairs cut. Uh, and if you, uh, if you saw him earlier in the program, uh, and for those that are just listening, he, he looks lean and mean. Uh, he got full-on shaved. It was, uh, it was, he, he's a, he's a good-looking man just to begin with. And uh, he looks... He looks wonderful. And I, I appreciate both Luis and Jeff uh, chiming in on the, on the Biggie conversation uh, earlier today. Uh, speaking of chiming in, please make sure that you do. All right. Send us your comments and your questions and your concerns out there, good or bad. You agree, you disagree, you vehemently disagree about the things that we've talked about. Certainly let us know uh, because we want to hear about all of those things. Mossy, anything you want to say to the people before we do uh, head out? That's it. All right. Thank you so much again for listening. We will be back again the same time, same place next week for the State of the Union podcast. As I said, continue to review and download and rate and review and do all of those different things on all the different uh, platforms out there that you get your podcast and then on the social media platforms if you want to get in touch with us. We'll see you again next week. And until then, as always, size the day. <laughs>